Well, for one thing, it was only open for like three months out of the year. Yeah. Uh, another thing is that it was very small. Uh, and, uh, you know, it didn't look like a very attractive pool. Like my uncle has a bigger pool than that, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, ours looks good now. <laughs> uh, but after all the restorations and a year and a half of doing it, it's frustrating not to be able to use it. So. Also, just generally not a fan of outdoor pools as much You're as not? indoor pools. Not not as much. In, indoor pools, you know, uh, it, there's something a little nicer about them. I think you can do a bit more. The, our very first apartment complex we lived in, they had an indoor pool, uh, like a community indoor pool. And that was really nice. I like that. And I grew up learning to swim in an indoor pool, a pool recreation center in our, in our town which I realized is a very privileged thing to have. Like, cause that, that's where I learned to swim is that I took swimming lessons there as a kid. And it was only like, like recently they had to close it because they didn't have enough funding. And, I, and it was very disappointing to me. I'm like, Oh, how do kids learn to swim then? You know, it's, you know, it is a, a great place to learn. It is a more safe environment. And it was always a nice thing to go and do go to the, the community pool. I had to learn like in a murky lake, which is another kind of privilege, I guess, if you have a cabin in your family. <laughs> yeah. My, I'm not my, saying that's less than having access to an indoor pool. <laughs> I, I imagine that most people who don't have access to a pool uh, have, have a similar story to my my fiance's dad, who, who would always tell how his dad, like, you know, swam out. They, they lived in Guam. And so, he, you know, he swam out in the ocean there and found a rock. He put his dad put him up on the rock and then left yeah <laughs> and so he had to figure out his way back to swim i think my and... dad just threw me off the dock like the john wayne it's <laughs> like the jib in, in hondo yeah he threw me off like hondo <laughs> until i learned to swim it, it just seems like the worst way to teach someone to swim i wouldn't um, do that with ezra she likes the water so much why would i add any terror to that experience um, yeah, I guess uh, I guess people just get tempted, like at a certain because we see it in things like John Wayne movies yeah. all the time, and we're like, oh, I guess this is how kids learn to swim, and so we traumatize them. My dad was like, I always wanted to throw a kid in the pool so, uh, for him. Uh, I didn't really learn in pools though. I haven't done many pools. I've done a lot of lakes. I'm a I'm a lake swimmer. I used to be able to do like back and forth across the whole lake, and I was a strong swimmer, but. Uh, I have very little access or I have very little inclination to get in a body of water right now. I imagine lakes are cleaner in general too. Less yeah. people pee in lakes, but you know, uh, or at least uh, it spreads out a little bit more. You got a little bit more. It's deep enough area. and wide enough that, you know, no real consequence. Yeah. You might have some fish crawl up your butt or something, but <laughs> I'm sure this summer we'll be able to get you to our other cabin. Our that would, really that would nice, be great. Uh, It'd be great. I'm actually, I'm excited now that the weather is, beautiful again here strangely enough for for washington uh um, tomorrow i'm gonna head out on a canoe trip just you know up and down the river a little bit just because it's, it's so gorgeous so nice um I, i've just been outdoors the last few days yeah. ezra's laying uh outside right now in the sun uh, she's set up a little fort on the outdoor couch so it's been beautiful. I've been I've been summer vibing all week. I've been doing Beach Boys. I've I've listened through the whole discography now. Uh, real surf vibes for me this week. Yeah, it's uh, probably the the best kind of music to listen to in this weather. 
again, weather, which is impeding my visual element here extremely. <laughs> the sun is so bright and so warm that it's literally casting you in shadow. You look like Dr. Claw. I look like one of those guys, like in a documentary, who like trying to like plot out who they are, right? Like it's just like, like a like four, a... former neo Nazi or something. Jesus, this really is an alt right podcast. <laughs> like alternative to the right, a character select screen in a in a fighting game. I look like I'm. Yeah. <laughs> You look like someone who's yet to be unlocked. You know, you get the shadowy silhouette of the character. Choose your fighter. <laughs> mystery podcaster. <laughs> Today's mystery podcast. Um, <laughs> and I, I've just got the vaccine. So like between that and like the, the brightness and the warmth finally coming, it, it's a beautiful time to have both coming at once. Uh, I'm glad that I didn't get it during the winter and not have anything to go do. I, I'm so pumped to get out and do some shit. Yeah, I've got my second shot coming up at the beginning of next month, which is very exciting. I just saw an announcement today as well from the president that uh, everyone should be eligible now, as of today, yeah. to, to get a vaccine, which is great here in America. Um, and, and hopefully people get the fucking vaccine so we can get back out. So I didn't have any real problems again. It was the same experience. Everyone cheered every time they finished their rounds of shots. It took me about 40 minutes down at the Seahawks field. Um, the only weird thing that happened this time, you have to go and do your 15 minutes in the waiting area. Um, and one of the nurses or volunteers there, uh, she stood right by me and she's talking to this person about everything that's gone wrong. The guy's like, hey, why do we have to stay here? She's like, well, I just had two people today. Their necks just had convulsions and i'm like i'm like sitting there letting my vaccine set in and she's like yeah their necks completely cramped up and they lost control of the right side of their body and i'm sitting there thinking about all that could go wrong with me you know it's uh, not what you want to hear the second you mm. got the shot um very, very well and, and everyone's very concerned particularly with like the johnson and johnson news with the six patients who had uh blood, blood clots yeah which is um, concerning it's very concerning it and very it was concerning. particularly concerning because that happened right after my fiance got the Johnson and Johnson shot and it's like, mm -hmm. Oh, they're all women too. And it's like, Oh, great. That's but the statistic is so small, but it's important to recognize still just not let it overwhelm. Cause again, you know, you do have a higher chance of getting COVID than and a blood clot from COVID no less than you do from the vaccine. For me, uh, I got the Pfizer and, and no true side effects. I mean, I, I feel like I've been hit by a truck and I can barely move today, but uh beyond like that that feeling of extreme fatigue and some chills and a bit of temperature yesterday besides all that no side effects mm -hmm. uh, and and it's great. natural it's natural for that to happen that's your yeah. body reacting to the the protein that you know is identified with the uh covid virus and, and your body just like reacting in a way that you know just totally eliminates it in the same way that your body like raises the temperature of your you know system to combat like a, a fever you know or, or whatnot it's you know uh it it feels bad for you but it's a good thing that your body's doing it's a reaction uh, to to eliminate something in your system. I also feel great because it's once a year that we'll probably have to do this. It's it's not so bad to take a few days and rest, watch movies, um, yeah, listen to Beach Boys, every album they've ever made. Do you know much about Beach Boys? Uh, I do a little bit more so about uh, Brian Wilson and his involvement with uh, Charles Manson, thanks to some <laughs> <laughs> history I've learned about. But uh, you know, I, I know about the Beach Boys as a band and outside of you know murder cult associations as well yeah uh they're they're an okay band they 
they're very commercialized and kind of banal once they're beginning. I mean, uh, these first six, seven albums are basically a single with B-sides attached to them. Uh, it's been a long journey, but I saw Love and Mercy, which is the uh, biopic with um, Paul Dano as Brian Wilson, like when he's doing pet, you know, pet sounds. And then there's John Cusack, who's playing the same character later in life, but he seems like completely detached from the material. He's he's just John Cusack. I so. thought for a second you were going to say he was playing the same character from High Fidelity. And I just imagined yes. him kind of like through the film and like brooding about his his girlfriend and stuff while he talking really about is. the Beach Boys and music. And yeah. eventually Bruce Springsteen shows up or something. <laughs> yeah, that's accurate. He, he's still playing the High Fidelity <laughs> guy. Love and Mercy, pretty interesting biopic because it goes into that two-sided character development and it got me to listen to all this music. So it's a lot of those lately. Is that is that like another one that will add to the counter along with like Bohemian Rhapsody and Rocket, Rocket Man, Man. Yeah. And, and such? I'm trying to think if there's any others. Uh, there, there probably is. There's that Stardust movie about Oh Bowie. yeah. That was does that, fucking does shit. Does that count? Does that no. count? If you don't get the music for the band and you're explicitly working against, you know, the wishes of the the, the family, like, is it really count? It's like an anti-biopic. Um. <laughs> so there's others I'm just not thinking of right now, but we need more. I think I like yeah. I like to hear about musicians in, in biographical formats like this. It's a pretty low barrier of entry. You're like, oh, I've heard this rock band. I'm going to sit down for two hours and watch the thing about them. That uh, That's always and, easy. And, so. and hopefully, and again, like at the very least, you can be promised a kick-ass soundtrack. So, you know, <laughs> most of the time. Paul Dano sounds fucking great in the recording sessions in there. So That's awesome as well. Yeah. I mean, he kind of fits like a Brian Wilson energy in a way that, that weird, you know, kind of high-strung art, artsy energy. I think he can do that pretty well. I know we're both Paul Dano. Uh, fans in some sense somewhat i like some swiss measure army man a lot you know yeah we gotta I, I do love, that soon love, love swiss army man hate ruby sparks so you know we got we got a, a spectrum of likability there <laughs> he is likable when when he is though i mean it works it's good yeah he, he is a good modern actor who's very quirky and enjoyable and things i like paul dino Welcome to another episode of the Twin Geeks cast. Uh, I'm David here with Calvin again. Uh, and we're here to talk about movies and music dis discographies. Uh, um, so I hear. <laughs> movies and and the people who made them? No. What's, what's our tagline? Movies that matter. Movies vaccinate <laughs> the kids. You want to redo that? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> this week I've watched uh, Six Feet Under. <laughs> uh, it's a HBO show that's tangentially related. Well, I'd say even more than tangentially because it's all funerals. Um, and it's all about uh, funeral procession service and the family business where they go and uh, take these bodies and they uh, fix them upright so they're, they're good for showings. Uh, there's a lot of human drama in there. Uh, Michael C. Hall, who uh, we all know from Dexter, of course, but I think really extraordinary here. Um, and this whole family dynamic really pushes the show. And I, I was starting to look at it as like every episode is like the the five stages of anger, right? Um, every episode's like constructed around that till they get to acceptance. So in some way, it's like a meaningful way to process death on the television um, in a way that, you know, hasn't really sincerely been done 
in a in like a whole scope of a show before. Um, it's about all the ways that you could die and how everyone dies. So uh, there's a lot hanging over the show. We know eventually some main characters have to pass. Uh, the father who owns the business passes right away. First episode, he's run through in his truck. Um, Ooh. So his son has to come down from Seattle. And now he oh, there, there we go. There's the linchpin. <laughs> now he lives in California. Um, less exciting for Calvin. Less exciting for me. They do go back to Seattle now, a couple of times. San Francisco or somewhere more habitable? I think it's like Pasadena. Uh, okay. So very okay. habitable. I mean, it's better than San Francisco. At least. Yeah. It's funny because once he comes down from Seattle, he's got like that granola lifestyle. He's like trying to sell them all the organic foods from like celebrity brands and uh, just all this uh, upper left bullshit that we have up here. Uh, It's just a total different lifestyle. And I think the show reflects that in a way that he's coming from like 90s Seattle too. So there's a culture there, um, a culture shock from going to that to California and on his way home. He doesn't know his father's dead yet, so he hooks up with the girl in the bathroom of the airport, and uh, that becomes his fling for the show. Very, very classy, always. So I've watched about half the show now. I'm super glad I got into the third season last night because I feel like there's a huge mark in quality, um, a huge uptick, because like Sopranos is really taking off by this point, and HBO is just like massively funding their shows. So first two seasons, I was I was fucking in anyway. I mean, it's a cool show, and I wanted to connect it to our Harold and Maude talk. But um, is so is is the Harold and Maude connection the only reason that you thought to talk about this fifteen year old show? I'd say that watching this is the only reason I wanted to push Harold and Maude. <laughs> <laughs> oh, interesting! It's the other way wrong. Yeah. The the tail wagging the dog. So it's interesting. We got these um, Apple HomePod set up on like either side of the bed now, and. Um, I didn't notice really anything because we were just watching an old TV show. I'm like, this isn't really surround sound. But then I got to the third season. I was like, holy shit. Like there's, you know, stereo sounds and everything's separating. Um, And we also watched Anima, the uh, PTA one last night. I'm like, I'm hearing textures in the sound I haven't heard. So uh, I'm living a whole different life now. Uh, I'm living a a life of a stereophonic sound and um, left and right speaker. Uh, really really fantastic and by the third season i was like holy shit like the sounds rich and deep and uh, they finally have cinematography and they could afford a dolly <laughs> so um i really enjoy the show i'm sure i'll get back to it once i finish the whole thing but mostly i wanted to shout it out and uh, kind of catalog a journey there with a retro television show yeah it's always good to to highlight uh i think secretly be, you know beyond all the movies we talk about every week me and you are constantly watching something more elongated in the background that we don't often talk about uh most of the time i think I you more than me <laughs> yeah but i'm talking about what i watch every week yeah i i rewatch like the same five things to you know at the end of the night or whatever what or are they busy big uh let's see watch lots of seinfeld scrubs uh i go on like a cartoon binge every now and then just finished like another run through a few trauma which led me to revisit Matt Groening's new show, Disenchantment, which was just utterly disappointing. Should we go into that? Season. I watched uh, the first season, but... Yeah, uh, I, I guess I'll just talk about it a little bit. I watched the first season when it first came out because I'm like, oh, Matt Groening did a new show, you know, new animated show. This is great. I love Futurama and The Simpsons and such. And, yeah. and, and it was just really like... 
all over the place. It, it didn't really have a very clear direction what it wanted to do. <laughs> and and the characters, you know, while they were enjoyable, they didn't really have a good like, you know, foundation necessarily. And it's like, all right, this is a little rocky, but I, I see things I like, and you know, there's a good following already building up. And the first season of most shows are pretty mediocre when you look back. So it's like, okay. And so I, you know, I waited a little while and the most recent season just came out this, this year, the beginning of this year. So, you know, I, I'd missed season two and uh, came back for season three season. And so I decided, all right, I'll give it another shot. I know the first season was kind of a disappointment um, and I wasn't taken by it entirely, but uh, you know, I want to see if things got better. So rewatch season one, basically exactly how I remembered some good things, you know, mostly a lot of, you know, listlessness. Uh, season two, there was a market improvement in areas, um, you know, more engagement, more clear character definition, but also a lot of the similar problems just inflated, like adding, injecting more mystery into things and bringing up new plot lines that don't get resolved. And, you know, just all these kind of like overindulgence of characters and ideas and things that just, you know, don't get fleshed out. It's like, all right, well, you know, it's, there, there, there's at least more potential here, I saw. And going into season three, just everything just got fucking lost. It was like really even more plot, you know, things. Okay. We're going to this new kingdom thing, and then we're going to do a couple episodes there, and then we're going to move on and not talk about it anymore. Here's some more mysteries. Let's revive this mystery from season one and th- not resolve any of it, and then we're going to okay. move on again. <laughs> and it's just, and by the time you work up to, the, and, and any, like, enjoyment in terms of, like, the comedy was just gone. Like, I'm just like, what the fuck are the writers even doing anymore? <laughs> it felt to me like a show that's being made because Matt Groening should be making a show, not necessarily because they had one to talk. Uh, no, I, I think they had an idea because, like, it came, the, the idea came right at the height of, like, Game of Thrones interest. Okay. And then, you know, they, they murdered the fantasy genre, basically, and any interest in it. Uh, and so I, I think, you know. Now they're, it's they're, scrambling. <laughs> A, a bit like yeah. uh, obviously like it was very clear from the first season that they didn't have like a very clear-cut idea but because it's a netflix show they're like all right we need to have like an overarching story you know for each you know season to keep people engaged i think you could get away with it don't you on netflix that you kind of have a show that's scrambly and it's not look you know i think the barrier to entry is so low on netflix that people will watch that kind of thing what? Well, I think what the problem is is that the the typical style of greening shows in Simpsons and in Futurama is that they're very episodic, they're very contained. Sometimes there's like an overarching, there's character arcs that occur over the series, but they happen incrementally and not like episode to episode. Whereas Disenchantment tries to take the more you know typical Netflix show approach where you have a plot that each episode is engaging in, like you know. Uh, slowly over the course of the entire season but I just don't think that Greening and his team knows how to do that exactly and so maybe they shouldn't be doing that maybe they should do what he specialized in I mean I'm I'm fine with the idea of him trying to do something different I would encourage that but it just doesn't seem like they they, they're approaching it entirely like it feels very half-hearted and they're caught between the two styles of you know uh, show show creation there and (laughs) Well, Simpsons gone forever without a hitch in production. I think they brought Futurama back and I never watched the new ones. Futurama, they did. It came back like in two different instances. It was canceled twice. twice. (laughs) Yeah. Shit. One time it was Fox who like Fox was who it was originally with. And then they canceled it. And then it was brought back through uh, Comedy Central, I believe. Okay. Anyway, it's got an interesting history. But uh, I will say as as an ardent fan of the series, like the quality never really 
wavers throughout, even when you have yeah. that change of regime. And the writing is consistently there. Uh, I personally, I like Futurama even more than The Simpsons. Um, Me too, at least the early run. I, I didn't get to the new stuff that they redeveloped. but mm-hmm. I, I would advise going back and, and checking it out because, you know, some of it seems... Tr- there, there is... A noticeable change, though, in that uh, some of the the episodes, uh, you know, and, and the the general themes and ideas become more contemporary in their subjects. There's like I remember, like they, they have an election episode that's specifically reflective of the 2012 election, mm-hmm. whereas the the first seasons wouldn't really do that. Like it was no, very much wouldn't. about they would be more futuristic. It's really like you know talking about the year like 3000. Like don't don't even care that much about uh, what's going on and more juxtaposing you know, the, the differences and similarities between what a future New York City would be like versus, you know, the one of the late 90s, early 2000s. But by the time you get to the 2010s, it's like, it's very much about the 2010. I would I would definitely talk about Futurama at length sometimes. It's one of those shows I, I grew up watching all the time on, on reruns and such, and one I have great affection for and still visit all the time. Uh, but I did not mean to go on a tangent about it in <laughs> Matt Groening's other great. shows here today. Uh, we could do a Futurama and then John Lovitz, the critic. Those are the two cartoons left that we have. I, I, I will also talk about the critic, uh, <laughs> a kind of a kind of love hate relationship. Yeah, yeah, same. <laughs> <laughs> like it's like, oh, it's, it's a lot of good in here, but also like it's it's very awkward in places. <laughs> it's very very awkward when it is. Um, it's it's hard it's hard for me to sit down and watch all of the critic. Like, it, uh, but but I, I love it in lots of places. <laughs> Speaking of awkward, uh, here's a transition. I watched, <laughs> I watched uh, Ben Wheatley's In the Earth, uh, which I watched, I think, three weeks ago now. It's so funny when I get to talk about these things, um, which is a horror movie that is very economical with its pace and what it is able to do with the virus. Uh, and it, it feels like there's a virus and a pandemic in the movie, but it's obviously not Corona. Um, there's There's other stuff going on in the world building there. Um, it's about a guy who lost his research partner. He's gone out in the woods. Uh, and although he is an explorer of the woods and a research guy, uh, he really doesn't like the wilderness. He's not set out for this life. Um, so he gets a more adventurous uh, uh, woman that joins him and they go explore until they're, uh, they're caught by this woodsman who uh, takes them off to a tent and steals their shoes of all things. That doesn't really make sense to me. Um, he takes their shoes and not much else. Um, but there's all this mythology and folklore in the woods and uh, Ben Wheatley's playing into his history of uh, folklore in a way that he's developed from like the British idea of what uh, horror should be in the sense that it's folk and about uh, the history of the country, keeping people out and uh, why people stay in, um, which horror is really about like a lot of boundaries in that way and uh, how we define ourselves and how we separate ourselves from others. Uh, which is interesting in this woods and this dynamic where we're all trying to stay apart, uh, which is very evident in the movie. Uh, really good construction of those kind of things, I think. And it's got this like weird phantasmagoric um, light show at the end, which doesn't make any sense at all. Like it doesn't make a lick of sense, <laughs> but I'm really here for that kind of weird ass horror that's kind of like annihilation looking and uh, kind of like filtering through fast cuts and uh, just iconography of the woods and uh, elder gods that that stuff's fun for me so i like it but not a not an amazing horror film mm-hmm. yeah it, it definitely sounded like reading your review which is now up on the website for anyone who wants to check it out uh that, that you have a mixed feelings towards it 
like wanting to like it more, but also recognizing its inherent flaws uh, and the interesting relationship it has in terms of being a pandemic movie, which uh, I'm constantly interested uh, by. I'm constantly fascinated by like all of these films which are working under the restraints of the pandemic or have to directly incorporate the limitations of the pandemic. And I often wonder how like this is going to be written about in 10, 20 years time, yeah. like this year of, of filmmaking that was kind of done in, in a bubble and such and the various films that chose to comment on them. Would you say this is in the, the upper echelon of them or kind of like in the in the middle of the pack i'd say like a higher middle um there, there's a lot of bullshit of course that we're not covering which is uh, just very <laughs> i mean you've, you've watched a lot of shitty pandemic movies i know and, yeah, and you're uh, very tired of them <laughs> i feel like little fish so far is the best one but that was shot before so that doesn't count there was one at sif mm-hmm. i saw but that was also shot before it's weird that there are like three I, I or four the, ones that, that just came out the biggest one must have been that one like that the zoom one that everyone hooked on to well i can't Language remember the name lessons? of it no no it was like a horror oh one. the host it was the host yeah yeah, yeah. The... lots of lots of people watching that were like this was a good movie it's no you were not <laughs> it's fucking not that's, a good that's one way to put it <laughs> i don't know why it would be no. good i i understand that it's building horror through zoom i mean that's interesting i guess if you haven't but, seen uh, Lots of people liked it, though, I know. Like, that one's, I think, that they got the most press in terms of pandemic movies. I guess because it's easy, right? Like, it's accessible and it's easy to understand why they would make a movie that way right now. The, the other, like, Zoom remember one that you reviewed, again, I, I have no no memory for names of these movies Language that you lessons go through. But... Was the other one? Yeah, Language yeah. It was, yeah, you mentioned it. And now that you mentioned it again, it clicked. But, uh, yeah, or... It sounded very odd, the movie. <laughs> Language lessons? Um, yeah. It's odd. Yeah. Like the... <laughs> but anyway, back to uh, In the Earth, In the Earth here. Um, is it something you would recommend to people, despite its kind of mixed quality here? I'd like it as like a midnight movie or a, um, it's one that you wouldn't have to go to theater for. So something that was shot with the limitations of the pandemic and kind of benefits from being on demand as well. So I, I like it. And, and you said it was directed by Ben Wheatley, you said, who just recently did, did the. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which which was not very good by your estimation, I recall. It's at least twice as good as that and has none of the uh, army hammer, so that's good. <laughs> uh, no, no cannibalism carried over? Uh, the, mm, I don't want to say none. Uh, but le- significantly less than just having army hammer in the frame I would that's, say. that's true <laughs> i like that mystery though you leave me with it's a, oh this movie might have cannibalism in it. <laughs> I, th- I think that's how we should advertise all movies yeah <laughs> casablanca not a zero percent chance of cannibalism <laughs> uh, they should definitely have um kind of uh cheeky taglines that that offer what might be in the movie it like it's like a gamble you know yeah yeah like, like i want to see like a percentage breakdown of these things <laughs> like 60 percent chance of you know yeah, like it's like a weather report or something <laughs> yeah i, like, I only I like watch that. movies with 70 percent chance of necrophilia and bestiality <laughs> so only you watch gotta, <laughs> you gotta roll the dice and hope you get that 30 percent instead <laughs> i only watch horse woman dog <laughs> 
Let's get it. So is that the last of the uh, Sif films to want, that, that you have to report on? That wasn't even Sif. That's just a... Oh, I thought it was. That's a neon release that's out now. It was, yeah, theater. it was embargoed, I remember. But yeah, yeah. so... But is there more Sif to come? I can't recall. No, I, I'm done with Sif. Okay. It, so it was Sif a weird festival, yeah. It was, it was. I know, strange. like, it was... L- lack of communication definitely hurt some things, but it sounds like you had a, a good time and, and some good exposure still. I'd like to write at least one or two more, but we'll see. It was a very strange festival, and the access was strange this year. So uh, if they gave me all the movies, I probably could have done a lot more. It happens. Hopefully, hopefully next year it'll just be back to normal. I, I'm I really I'm saying so. I'm saying things that I might regret. These these comments might age like milk. Yeah, at least <laughs> we're next almost year. there. At least Not. next year, I hope they have more staff and they bring people back who are very instrumental in running those things. So that would be great. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we have time for my short documentary discourse here before we move on to our feature. Uh, you like old movies, right, Calvin? They're okay. You like uh, old movies with monkeys in them? Oh, all of them. Yeah. Uh, how about how about the most famous one? What's the most famous movie with an old monkey you can think or uh, most famous it, old movie with a monkey? Any Which Way But Loose. Okay. Uh, maybe a little older. <laughs> and, uh, and less Clint Eastwoody. <laughs> monkey Shine. I think that's less young. I'm pretty sure that one was in the 80s. <laughs> um, Planet of the Apes. Okay, that 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 that'll give you is that. Um, so that, that's a fair guess and a good one, and we're in the the right range of classic movies, good reputation with monkeys. But no, I'm talking about Dora the OG Dora. here. Oh. No, not, not. I mean. <laughs> Okay, I guess there's the monkey there too, but no, I'm talking about King Kong. Swiper no swiping. <laughs> that, I guess that's a little bit of misleading because King Kong is a giant prehistoric gorilla, not a monkey. There's a difference, but regardless, King Kong, OG, 1933 yeah. film. Uh, by, by OG, do you mean original gorilla? <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I mean. Oh I'm yeah, glad you know your acronyms. <laughs> so King Kong is a. It's it's a classic, uh, one of the the great, uh, you know, pioneering, you know, monster movies of its time. Uh, it's got some more relevance lately, particularly because of the the monk versus lizard movie, uh, Godzilla <laughs> versus Kong. Oh yeah, uh, is that why you watch this? I like that you watch this and not the actual movie. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not talking about King Kong. We're talking about. I think a, that's great. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a 2016 documentary called "Long Live the King," which is about King Kong, uh, specifically like the character and his legacy in, in movies and such. Uh, and I, I watched it because it was interesting and I like King Kong and uh, I didn't have a lot of time to get another movie in. So it was like, it was only an hour long documentary and I'm like, oh, this is cool. I just found it on Amazon and it's got lots of interesting, you know, important talking heads in here. Um, you know, like Joe Dante opens up uh, talking about the movie and whatnot. And you got like a, del toro um you know who, who pops in for a second you got uh, doug jones as well you know lots of big uh collectors and movie fans and stuff just talking about the the history of the character the, the many movies he was in and such and the general legacy and impact of of kong and uh while all of those sound like very positive things the documentary itself is is not great <laughs> um it's i think it's interesting for for people but like like kind of surface level insight to 
most of the, the the movies probably most of you know the king kong movies that you haven't heard of it starts like talking about king kong right. you know the movie and its legacy and its impact and you know people got personal anecdotes of seeing it for the first time on television or whatnot you know like the special you know uh you know when they would run on on tv for like the first time or whatever these midnight movie things or whatever and yeah and anecdotes about uh you know the experience of watching it the first time lots of horny anecdotes about fey ray of course oh <laughs> <laughs> and it and it's and it's good but it's like it doesn't dive too much into it uh, a, a little bit of insight if you don't know about it like marion c cooper the director and producer of the film and how much of a crazy adventurer person he was and how it kind of defined um this legacy and saved uh rko you know made a lot of money for them and such and then it moves on i think uh without diving too much into the original film into oh no the, the other films of the series well there's and, just the one for a very long time that you want to think about right oh well yeah but there there isn't in fact the next king kong movie came out the same year and that was, was it good it was son of kong uh and i doubt it <laughs> yeah that's that's where the, the documentary kind of dives into just like talking about like an increasing mediocrity of Kong sequels that even these fans of Kong like don't really enjoy. <laughs> and they talk about how poor the stories are, how bad like, you know, the, the puppets can be, but sometimes they're an improvement, you know, as well, noticing that. And then like, and, and it goes through each of the films, uh, lots of negative things to say about oh, um, King Kong versus Godzilla. Lots of people don't like that one. <laughs> that seems so superfluous to why you would do this documentary. Uh, yeah, like when I when I looked at it, like it seemed to advertise to me just talking about the first film, the main. That's all film. I want. Yeah. And but and it went to the sequels, which I think is somewhat interesting for someone who doesn't have much interest in in the sequels. <laughs> in the sequels and, and, yeah. You know, I could I could learn about them, you know, through through anecdotal you know history there, uh, and. But, but really, like, it is just like a quick, you know, crash course through all the movies with the, these various talking heads going over all of them. And not in, like, a significant detail, not a whole lot of even, like, anecdotes from people who were there, you know, like, they, they got big names, but it's mostly people like like Joe Dante, like yeah. I said, who who will do an interview for any documentary. He'll, he'll just show up everywhere. I if, think if it's you watch enough contract. of these on... If you if you watch enough of these uh you know like documentaries on cult films and stuff like that he's just fucking everywhere and he because he, he just loves talking about movies and you know good on him that's great but uh, like they they talk about things like like Rick Baker's involvement with the '76 Kong yeah but it's like well you, but you didn't get someone like Rick Baker to talk about the movie it's all anecdotal it's all like people talking about their experience watching the movie or like and, and it ends talking about the Jackson Kong and everyone like there's lots of like corny anecdotes about people tearing up and crying okay. when Kong dies at the end of it and and it, I think it's funny to see that juxtaposed with a lot of people in our group here including you who went through like the Kong movies and uh, like particularly reevaluating the Jackson Kong and being it's like so oh, fucking this. long uh, without <laughs> any of the impact that Lord of the Rings. Are we ever going to cover Lord of the Rings? I don't know. Maybe when like Amazon may, maybe has the new show. I don't want to like. I'm not, I'm not opposed Amazon to show, it. But... I'm not opposed to covering Lord of the Rings, but like finding the time to do it is <laughs> a challenge. It would be over months, right? Like we could do one a month and maybe like, like a western. <laughs> uh, it sounds like so much to do that I. 
But yeah, I, I know this isn't a, a, a great documentary discourse section, but I'm not here just to talk about and, and laud, you know, these very, you know, cherished documentaries, these hidden <laughs> right. all the time. I'm watching whatever I come across that tickles my interest, and I'm going to be candid about it, whether it's good or bad. And this one is a fairly middling documentary. Uh, you know, like if you've got an interest in Kong, it's got a little bit of appeal, sure. An hour, an hour runtime makes it, you know, pretty easy. Oh, that's it. To cut in but yeah. yeah like as far as like insight and like history and things and, and a new perspective that you wouldn't get just like you know from watching them yourselves necessarily it's fairly weak it doesn't have any of the new ones and it. it came out around the time of jackson's well, calling I yeah like yeah. Uh, God, what's is has anything come out since 2016 i think had the uh skull island oh yeah the, skull island yeah. yeah that that one there so yeah that, and that's the other thing is that now it's an outdated documentary because you've got <laughs> three two, yeah. very significant ones nonetheless. Like, it's not like these are just some cheapo ones that came out. Like, these are like, probably more important in the Kong legacy now than well, something like Mighty Joe Young, even. <laughs> and you say that uh, the original King Kong saved RKO, but Godzilla vs. Kong might have saved the movies. It might have saved cinema in general. <laughs> that's, that's true. Let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> uh, that matters, too. But yeah, like this... and. I, I think this is, I also wanted to highlight this one just to say that someday I'm certain we'll cover the original King Kong oh, as, got to, yeah. as a podcast episode because, you know, despite the, the middling sequels, uh, you know, that, that came thereafter, it's still an institutional film. And and, and it's funny to see because like some of these, the guys in the documentary are like, it's the greatest film ever made. And I'm like, <laughs> that's a little bit of a stretch, but I see where you're coming from. You know, it's got lots of appeal. It's, it's quite the, the pioneer in terms of, you know, stop motion artistry. So impressive. Still. Character. But yeah. like, do you remember much of the movie outside of the gorilla stuff? Like, no. do, you, do you remember the whole human element and things like that? Of course you don't. Cause it's I try not, not to, but it's, it's not that, that compelling. Well, kind of. Yeah. I remember like the stuff on the ship and I mean, it's yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, but like, are the characters, you know really up to snuff with you know some no. of the greatest films ever no of course not you know i i don't i think it's maybe a bit of a preposterous claim to try and you know argue king kong being on the same level in terms of cinematic depth oh, oh mean, like, it's the greatest but, like kaiju movie or like greatest monster movie i'd, I'd greatest monster movie yeah yeah I, I would group it in as like it, it gets the same laurels as like uh godzilla or or, or even Godzilla. like Frank, Fr Frankenstein. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's another one of those. And I guess that's a good question. And I want to tie in as well. Do you think King Kong is a, is a horror movie? No. It's, I don't know, it kind of is, but it's also really not in lots of ways. It's it's much more like heavy on the adventure elements, but it yeah, has lots adventure. of, it has lots of horror elements to it. Kong is like constantly a, a big threat and such and, and a terrifying, you know, <laughs> aspect of the story i think you look at like shin godzilla where godzilla becomes a real bastard and he and he has like no redeeming qualities and you could see like a horror movie being developed around kong like there are those elements where if they leaned into it you just get cloverfield right yeah it's it's kind of hard to though because yeah. inherently ever since even the first film like kong has just kind of cemented himself as a sympathetic character and he's a proxy for our emotions so yeah. it's hard to be like that yeah, you can't just turn him strictly into a, a mindless monster and a kind of like metaphorical, 
uh, disaster creature like Godzilla is necessarily. And so that's why he ends up like particularly in, and I think the new film reflects that as well is that he's the, the guy we're behind. We're rooting yeah, for he's, Kong. The, he's the main character of Godzilla versus Kong, even though his name comes second. So. And he, again, even in like the original film where he is supposed to be this, you know, embodiment of, of nature and, you know, tectonic force and such in you're really with them. And, and you get that through the, the articulation of the, the face and such and the emotion behind him that something like, rubber suit godzilla can't do <laughs> yeah so absolutely. That's, that's part of the the big reason why is that gordon willis's animation and you know embodiment of the the character in the models of king kong that's that's really why it's such an enduring film more than anything else is that you connect with kong and that's why something like this documentary exists is because the movie has touched you know so many people in this really affecting way while also just being a badass action monster movie where he like <laughs> wrestles with a tyrannosaurus rex and like snaps his jaw open at one point and he and he you know like he, he fights off pterodactyls and <laughs> the fucking awesome movie it's a cool movie we'll definitely get to it yeah but uh d- documentary long live the king uh, you know it's I, I i could probably make something like that if i had the resources and sure. the connections to talk about it i you know it's it's not useless it's, it's decent <laughs> All right. Well, uh, um, don't commit suicide over the break because we're coming back with Harold and Maud. All right. I'm tying up my noose right now. So far, that's uh, among my most successful transitions, which really just mind, talks like, about the other ones. Do you mind just hanging here for a second so yeah, I can yeah. go like, like use the bathroom? No, no. Go ahead. Don't keep this in the podcast. That's weird. <laughs> well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free Cause there's a million things to be You know that there are And if you want to live high, live high And if you want to live low, live low Cause there's a million ways to go You know that there are And if do you, you feel want to sing out, sing out. Oh, I was going to talk about this. Great. So I didn't know this. I didn't, I, I have not seen Harold and Maude before today. This is a new experience for me. And the opening of the film really captured my delight because I did not know that this was another film in the tradition of early 70s movies with soundtracks composed by prominent folk singers, a la, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid or, or such, you know. Yeah, very influential on some of those, maybe. I mean, other way around, I, w- I would say, because it's came out a little later. Okay. Yeah, this is the same year as uh, McCabe, so I guess they kind of like work. I, I think yeah, it's just like it was a thing that was happening. Prominence, like yeah. I-, I would point to the Graduate is probably the most influential in terms of. But that's so much worse. So, like the music is so much worse. Uh, I mean, Cat Stevens. Look, look, your your Simon and Garfunkel hate has no place here right now. Just indifference. I don't, it's not even hate. I don't. I don't, don't disagree care. with you because I love Cat Stevens, uh, particularly like like some of the songs in this movie are so delightful. But I want to say that Cat Stevens, I have a great affection for because when I was growing up, there was probably like two or three CDs that my parents had that I just listened to on repeat. And and one of them was Teaser and the Fire Cat from okay. Cat Stevens, which, which I just played endlessly and loved. The other one was uh, Seals, 1994 debut album <laughs> which is this very interesting mix for like a like a 10 year old to be right. like listening to obsessing over and nothing like what i listen to nowadays but occasionally <laughs> still 
I will throw on either of those albums and and just be you know like what was the third one nostalgia. Was there, was there another one? There, I'm sure there was. I just okay. said three because I'm, there's a mystery one floating around that I'll have to be reminded of. But I remember this one especially. And again, like the, Cat Stevens' music just really brings me back there. I, I just hop on the peace train and I drive into Cat Stevens' town. <laughs> it actually is one of my favorite openings of any movie it's like it ah. like the most brilliant opening to a short story let me just like go through it really quickly that oh please has, please do he has like these gorgeous like fancy italian shoes and you just see them like walking around the space and a uh, beautiful desk and you get like close-ups of his hands with like a very fancy lighter as well you're like oh this is a very rich and like affluent person who's doing business or something and you slowly like uh, the camera slowly comes up to him just being a kid and uh, we realize that he's uh, uh, preparing a ceremony as he lights these candles uh, with with the match that he, he it's very much like a ceremony and a process he has it looks like um, a church that yeah. they're in as well it's very kind of like that that kind of setting with the cat steven songs playing oh yeah uh, uh, but then as he walks away he gets up you know on the stool and then suddenly he's hanging himself and like the most beautiful thing happens where the the camera comes out and it almost looks like citizen kane's xanadu or something uh, with his mom like walking in and just no acknowledgement of her son hanging from the you know and she gets on the phone we think oh she she must at least be calling 911 but she's calling to change her hair appointment <laughs> meanwhile her son's hanging there and he's doing like laughing and choking sounds like like it's tongue's gone black and it's really my favorite opening of pretty much any movie i i love the sarcasm and like the dark wit of all of that and how it slowly reveals it, more and more until we're like what the fuck it's a really indicative uh establishment of the film proper like like i i said in my letterbox basically that whole opening sequence is like the definition of the film and everything it does the build up the the you know, the black humor that undercuts things, you know, and then the, you know, how it brings it back around into, you know, more humorous sentiment there. I was really caught off guard by the opening. You know, it was this kind of very somber, sentimental thing. You got the Cat Stevens music playing. Great, very well shot and directed the whole way. You know, it's all like close on hands and everything. Single shot. You don't see uh, Harold's face except for a few moments. And then just suddenly that, that like dark, violent, you know, hanging just bam it hits you i literally like audibly i said what the fuck like i was really not expecting it it came out of fucking nowhere and then when the mother came in and she just has this total nonchalance to the situation she's totally blase you know she sees this often or she just doesn't care anymore and and it, and it really like informed like okay you're, you know this is this is obviously a humorous thing you know and it's it's not real and, and you get that but they're still playing it straight for a little bit as the whole thing plays out and then you know but but it, it reassures you after getting you with this very sudden and unexpected dark moment like i literally thought like we we're getting like a, a a different version of the film where like he was gonna hang himself because i knew a little bit about harold Lamont going in i knew obviously the the character dynamic relationship i knew that it had a theme of of death and life you know and, and harold being obsessed with death and stuff i was aware of that going in but i was not expecting this like so so blatantly and, and openly like that and it caught me off guard in it and it really sucked me into the film i was i was very attracted right away and yeah de- definitely i think uh if you, if you connect to that opening scene you're gonna have a great time with the film it's it's a very enjoyable and charming movie. 
I think like emo 14 year old Calvin for <laughs> a few months at least believed this was the greatest film of all time. I watched I, it on repeat and it's something a teenager could really get obsessed with. It is it is 100% because it connects with those emotions and, and if you identify with those ideas and those questions of, of purpose and such and the, you know those uh, curiosities about death that Harold has at that particular age even like my my fiance there she was saying like if i had watched this at like 16 or whatever i, I this is the kind of movie i needed at that time yeah. and i guarantee you that everyone who says this is like their their favorite movie or one of their favorite movies they probably watched it when they were a teenager because yeah, it had think, all of those immediate honest. appeals i mean that's I, not yeah that's not a dig at the movie either that's no just, i'm saying this is like a celebratory thing that there can be a movie for teenagers who like a who are examining death but don't yet understand life it's kind of like the premise of the movie to me it just like it has those appeals like very immediately very yeah. striking <laughs> and that that like teenage you know angst and just like a need to like be different and to like perceive things through like the the heightened lens of teenage emotion where everything seems like a life-changing event and everything seems catastrophic and huge Right. Oh, and, and the whole the, the romance thing as well. Like it's a very appealing kind of thing. This like casting aside all, all you know, um, conventions and ambitions and stuff and just enjoying life, living in the moment and all that. Like like it was pointed out again, like, God, I should just have Asia on the podcast here because she said it best is like Maude is essentially an octogenarian manic pixie dream girl. They really like flip that convention on its head <laughs> just by get, assigning those traits to an older character who's not like conventionally the kind that cinema just like oh here's a really fuckable girl because she's crazy. Like if 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 you if she was like the same age as Harold, you would hate her. Like this would oh, be yeah. this this would be like Zoe Deschanel in Five Hundred Days of Summer. Like you you would be absolutely livid with this woman. She's like oh I'm so quirky. I live in a train car and I steal <laughs> people's vehicles whenever I need. I go and visit funerals and such because they're just so fun. Like that's the kind of character Maud is and. Well, but, but but she's so charming, and, and I think a lot of it comes from Ruth Gordon's performance as well, and that she's such an, an endearing character, and you can buy into this way about her. And again, if, if she were younger, I think that would change the dynamic entirely. So obviously the, the age disparity is a huge aspect of the film, and it, and it kind of cements it as, as one of the perennial favorites of this kind of May-December dynamics, all out The Graduate, like I said, as well, mm -hmm. but... Obviously, it's it's you know in that same tier in terms of the films we talk about like that. There's something to it as well, where she's aged through a whole life of experiences. Where he's like, oh, so what did this manic pixie grandma do? And it's like, <laughs> oh, she cared about the big social issues. She was always there, like Forrest Gump. She kept returning to the <laughs> the scene of the great social events of their eras, and well, it's, it's part of all that. I mean, she has a whole history of like radical change and feminism and an interesting yeah. components when it is interesting particularly for that life and again also kind of you, know, you could say the same about ruth gordon the actress you know born at right. the tail end of the victorian era there with all of the you know still you know living and um you know going in the social circles of like the monarchies and such in you know in german aristocracy and that whole period uh, you know, and this interesting life to see and I, and I thought about it as I was watching the film too like literally like the life of existing in the early 1900s up through the early 70s just like what an intense time of radical evolution of culture that exists there like when when you're growing up you know she doesn't know like like cars don't exist 
yet really in any kind of capacity so of course you know it extends as well that her character is just you know absolutely crazy and you know doesn't know how to drive and just picks up whatever she you know finds and one thing I did was interesting as well because it does reflect with Ruth Gordon as well because she didn't actually know how to drive she never learned so they had to tow the car in all the scenes where she's behind the wheel which is why some of them are badly composed i think like the scene where she's she's like careening around in the hearse and it keeps <laughs> cutting to exterior shots of like the the hearse and such and it cuts back and forth a lot and i'm like oh this is very poorly done but it's you know n- not necessarily a fault of the filmmakers it's just the limitation of the actress so you can't really stay in in the in the car for very long <laughs> i think even like harold is an interesting construction that flips uh literature's conventions of a character onto its head we go back to like victorian era and we think about like what is like gothic literature we look at like emma or something and it's like uh she's handsome clever and rich but uh with harold you look at him and he's you know young rich obsessed with death like that that complete construction of what a young adult um what would come to inform what like young adult novels would become is like what harold amad is um, that that complete inversion of what kids could be in the movies and uh, how they would be in literature. I, th- I think it's an important dynamic as well as that he is a listless rich kid, you know, that he has no direction in his life, no purpose, because he just has all of this, you know, privilege and he doesn't know what necessarily to do with it, you know, and so he finds himself dwelling on this idea of, of death and such, and, and particularly because of his traumatic experience that they kind of inform later in the film i mean because they're so rich his mom's so preoccupied with like functions and everything he just wants her attention so he's always trying to hang himself it's like a weird psychosexual thing they break down there's there's lots of lots of bits throughout the film uh sometimes i feel like they're a little out of place but also i enjoy them enough as kind of like reprieves from the story so it's kind of like a double-edged sword where like you have these skits essentially of him mocking you know himself killing usually it happens when his mom is trying to arrange a date of a contemporary age with him and he'll do something like he'll he'll (laughs) i think the one that got me the most was like where she's having a conversation with the potential date his mother and in the background of the shot you you see him setting up like you know this uh self-immolation uh and so he sets himself on fire in the background there's lots of little moments where like there's action going on in the background of shots that are very well uh framed i think that that was one of the directorial highlights for me throughout the film but that one's probably the the biggest one (laughs) my favorite's uh when he has the date and he goes in does the harikari he's stabbing (laughs) himself and and then she gives an even greater performance his mom goes and drops the glass yeah Really that, that one that one i did find a little confusing but very enjoyable because it's like oh she's just as crazy as he is they're yeah. a good match but that's like the end like i wasn't it wasn't clear to me that like with the other ones where like his you know acts like scared off all the potential dates that and, and she was just like she totally rolled with it and did the romeo and juliet death scene well and it was great for him because he couldn't shock his mom whatever he did and finally he found a, a girl who could you know actually perform something that would cause a reaction <laughs> It was just odd how like it, it, you, you had like a development there, but then like you abandoned it. Like the the character never comes back or anything. Oh yeah, it goes away right away. Yeah, which again enjoyable, and, and that's what I mean. Where it's like it's an enjoyable skit within the film, but like it doesn't necessarily mesh with the rest of the the narrative. Well, there's like the it, odd thing of the military too, where, which is just a few asides. <laughs> with your uncle. 
uh, hilarious uncle. I love that he has his little pin where he just pulls it and he does the salute. Yep. Uh, that's a hilarious thing because he lost his arm in the war. He's talking about it's, what he lost. And... It's it's very humorous. And uh, the scene where, you know, he stages like this thing with uh, Maude out there to like, you know, scare away his, his uncle from enlisting him in the military. By You're a dirty commie. Like a, yeah, jingoistic <laughs> brat yelling at this old lady who's protesting. <laughs> and, and literally like they, they trick him into believing he pushed her down a hole or something like that. <laughs> I, I like that the but, film... It always takes like the leftist perspective of these things, though. It, it's always on that's, the right side of it, I'd say. It's because Hal Ashby is a, a giant hippie man. <laughs> so that's that's one thing is that this was the only Hal Ashby I had seen for forever. I mean, until like the last few years. But I've really got into being there lately. And now I feel like that's like my champion of the Ashby Hall of Fame. So. Ashby has a, a quite the record in terms of 70s cinema. And really you know, also famously had, a, you know... A uh, sadly cut short directorial career. He he died at fifty nine. That's a shame. Um, yeah, and and he's one of the 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 lauded you know uh, experimental you know or, or, or uh, American auteurs of the seventies. There, and the likes of the the vein of Altman and such, which also has that connection with Bud Court here, having just come off the wacky and undeterminable film that is Brewster McCloud. <laughs> I mean, he has like a a very direct and really interesting path doing things like Shampoo, which is just a crazy ass movie the last detail and last uh, detail is one of the other ones i've seen which i also like but is is also kind of like you know the, there's mixed things and, and yeah. i feel similarly here like good highs but also like so, some complaints <laughs> i think being there for me is probably my champion of these movies I, that's the one i will champion that's, that's the one i've heard that. the best about and i'll and i'll get there i'm i'm making my way through the the ashby filmography here very soon <laughs> I know we said it a lot today, but we need to set that up as a show too. I, I think I'm going to watch it every New Year's. I think that's going to be my New Year's movie. I did this year. No better way to start my year than something so optimistic and just just be there. Just fucking live, man. That's what like both of these movies are about. And that's the thing. Is that one of my biggest complaints with the this film uh, is that it has no subtlety. There's no subtlety yeah. in the themes of this film. Again, it's very explicit. Like Harold is obsessed with death. The movie is about you know the the difference you know this dichotomy of, of death and living life to the fullest and stuff. And of course, it's embodied by this elderly woman who's on the you know who the cusp of her her 80th birthday you know and and near the end of her life. She very loudly forecasts. The script is just so loud and overbearing with its themes and it smashes you over the head with them at every point possible like like <laughs> i remember that and there's a scene as well like where he's where the psychiatrist is talking to him and it's like it's already like very directly framed there's a picture of freud he has hanging on the wall it's like oh okay so you know there's no subtlety in the forecast we're giving there we're talking about 40 and then he literally spells out as well in the dialogue this idea of that how he has an obsession you know with, with his mother or whatever projecting these ideas it's like oh my god just, can, can you have a, a little bit more you know like nuance to your you know uh, direction here to your themes i I get it. And it's the same thing with like the, the I think it is a nuanced movie though, in its balance of like life and death and comedy and the morbid. I, I think it's a very enjoyable film and it's very direct in those themes. I don't know that it gets much more under the surface than those very uh, overt and broad ideas of life versus death that it that it states there. And again, because it is so on the nose about it at every point. I, I don't think it lends room to much deeper characterization beyond that. 
you know, especially like reflecting on Maud's character and how kind of singularly concerned she is with, with her own perspective of life and coming near the end and stuff. Like towards the end, I was definitely thinking, I'm like, she really doesn't care how this whole thing is going to affect Harold in the long run necessarily. <laughs> how traumatic this experience of a, a boy having his first love and then she, she kills herself. Yeah. Like, like I, and, and she's just like, send that love out to every other people. You, you really are not thinking this through how that's going to affect him. <laughs> Another reason I feel it's perfect for teenagers is that it has that like heightened, just uh, very literal and, um, you know, no real nuance to the symbolism there. It is what it says it is. Very, very explicit. It even ends on this like gigantic you know loud moment of symbolic closure for the character that's that's fine for satire that i think <laughs> satire can go that way if it needs to i, I it, i'm it not saying obvious. i'm not saying it's it's inherently bad i'm just saying the film yeah, would be richer if it if it were if it dug a little deeper if it didn't hit its themes so hard if it didn't bludgeon them so difficult but but i also agree with the idea that for a younger audience, it, it definitely helps spell out those ideas and connect with its themes more. So the fact that the film does end with him driving the literal symbol of his obsession with death <laughs> off a cliff as he embraces the musical embodiment of the relationship that he fostered with Maude, it's it's extremely loud and unsubtle, but you get it. Like, there's no questioning what the ending of the film is i think it is helpful for me to look at it as young adult literature now and an influence on like all the john greens and uh other uh directors for children like wes anderson who's just a child it's, de it's definitely got some wes anderson vibes uh throughout it see yeah like between this and badlands how you'd construct a style uh, also like particularly because like the the dark comedy you know very wes anderson-y for sure you also have the Bud Court connection because, like, I think you know, I, between this <laughs> and Bruce McCloud, I also think think about him in Life Aquatic. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah again, I, I can, and you can see the influence greatly. Uh, it's it's just definitely like like there. There's a lot of times where I got frustrated, where it's just like it's not saying anything different necessarily. It's just hitting these same ideas over and over again. <laughs> Did you like Bud Court in it? Sometimes oh, there's yes. like. Sometimes his delivery just like fades off, which is kind of the point, I think. But he's I think he delivers the the straight humor very well, the darkness. There's a couple of moments where he like literally winks to the camera and they maybe <laughs> burst out laughing. Like yeah, they're, they're and, funny. And because they're contained in those those skit segments where he's doing the things. And so they they feel very detached from the narrative already. And so it doesn't feel out of place for him to like literally like, you know, smirk at the camera, which is great. But he also plays the straight scenes very well in terms of the dramatics. Uh, when you get up to the end and he's, you know, like absolutely distraught. Um, I, I will say that's one moment where like the only moment in the film I felt like the music undercut anything, the beautiful music throughout otherwise, is that when when they're rushing to the hospital and it and then uses the Cat Stevens music. And I feel like it, it was inappropriate. For it was then. in that moment, I think. Yeah, yeah. like I, I think that's the moment where you just you play it as straight as possible. You really lean into the drama of this because the movie otherwise is very buoyant very light very humorous you know and it balances its uh you know lightness uh and, and humor with the, the the more morbid subject matter throughout but it's always a pleasant experience up until that that final act it's maybe the best balance of like that morbid sensation with you know lightness 
it's a it's a very enjoyable and charming movie throughout. Again, R- Ruth Gordon is such a delight, and they have a good chemistry together. They do. It's fun. Uh, yeah, and and again, it's like it's, <laughs> it, and and you can easily be swept away by the various antics, like you know where they they steal the, the plant, and she's like talking with the officer and just like, yep, this isn't my car. <laughs> and they, they run off with his, with his bike, you know, very soon after. But that, that was another thing where it's like, like if you think any more beyond the immediate effects there, where it's like by stealing all of these people's cars, she is like absolutely ruining so many people's days. Well, he's putting him in another bad <laughs> position, like as a youth, like she might be done with her life, but it's really incriminating him and a lot of crimes. So. It's yeah, it's 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 really like if you think about this beyond like the the very surface, you know, like humorous aspects of it, like she's a fucking menace. Yeah, it's it's not good too, but at least she uh, says fuck the police. That's yeah, we can, that's thing. a message we can all get behind. Yeah, she's the original all cops are bastards. So. And and but yeah, I, I found myself coming back to the comparison with the graduate a lot, not just because of the the folk soundtrack, not just because of the themes of like this older relationship, you know, with a, um, a younger man, uh, but just in a general, like, you know, kind of coming of age story and this learning more about yourself experience thing and particularly how romance functions and such. Uh, and it felt like a, a good child of that kind of film but uh, it, it never quite measured up to the same success that The Graduate manages to hit. Uh, I think I'd agree now. Um, I think I, I think The Graduate's a better movie, even with the Simon and Garfunkel, which is <laughs> saying a lot for it. But, but also I see as well, like how this one just has that more immediate appeal to a younger audience. The fact that, you know, you, yeah. you do have that different perspective of discovering it as a teenager, connecting with it. On... And I would, I would judge it as a young adult movie still. I mean, yeah. No, I no, wouldn't I'd... hold it up to The Graduate, which I think is just cinema for, for everyone. I... Sure. And, and The Graduate also tends to play very well with that kind of same audience, but it's not as outwardly humorous and enjoyable. It's a very funny movie still, The Graduate, of course. Um, have we covered? I feel like we covered The Graduate we already. Did. We yeah. did. Yeah. I would cover it again anyway. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's obviously there's like more of a, a light, you know, humorous appeal. I laugh I laugh very hard at many times in Harold and Maude, uh, but I did find it still somewhat disjointed. And uh, uh, the, the the romance aspect of it, certainly, I, I feel like it didn't connect as much. I, I don't think it's meant to, though, as well. Like, the idea that they're actually in love, it, it more so comes towards the end. And even then, I don't I don't think it's like a real component. Like I said earlier, I don't think Maude actually loves Harold. I think she's a very self-serving character. <laughs> I think that's probably true, but I think she, she loves how Harold him. makes her feel. I don't, yeah. and I don't know that there's anything about Harold she actually loves, but I also think that's a problem with the script that the characters themselves are, are very singular as well. They don't have much dimension beyond their concerns, their approach to life and death themselves. Like those are their single defining aspects of them. If they it, don't go if very it's comedy and satire. I think it, I look at it differently than I would the graduate, which isn't satirical. I think. So. Uh, I, I think the, the graduate is far more satirical than this. I far more than this? This yeah. whole movie is a satire. I mean, the whole premise is a satire. A, a satire of like, like you know... Life and death and the balance between... I, I, again, I, I suppose, but I think um, the, the graduate definitely has a more biting satire of youthful ennui. Um, you know, this idea of uh, directionless in life, the uh, 
the mismatch of uh, romance and, you know, how, how you're feeling towards, you know, a, a generational gap as well. In particular, there's lots of themes of generational gap that are hit, you know, way more in the graduate than there are here. Oh, um, I don't know. I did. <laughs> I, I, wouldn't I, wanted, say I, I wouldn't say it's a funny satire or anything. Well, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily like immediately go to either as like a defining satire, like say something like, you know, network, uh, you know, as a very overt satire from the same time period. But um, I, I do have one more negative thing to say before I, oh, I get back to praising the movie. And it's just one quick thing. They, they just like very like quickly tack on the note that Maud w was in Auschwitz and she survived yeah. the Holocaust. It's like a, it's like a single very quick shot and they don't make reference to it again. And it, and it doesn't, actually deepen her character it just feels like a cheap way to add like a, an element of fabricated tragedy to her that's not actually you know indicated within the character that's like the pre-forest gum thing like she had been through all this shit and it doesn't really mean anything or it's just history of well it's not there it, it's not in the character or in the text like it's just like they they pose a single shot with her her tattooed number on her arm <laughs> And that's supposed to like deepen her character, but it, it doesn't. <laughs> and it, and it, it felt, it felt very cheap. Uh, it felt like a very cheap device to me. <laughs> but yeah, so so those are a lot of my complaints with the film is that it's it's very surface level in terms of it's it's a satire, if you will. And I think commentary. that's fine. So for me, not yeah, complaints. It's, I, that's what I want from it to be surface. I mean, I, I think that broadens its appeal, but I think that I, undermines. Its I think if you did anything else that were more specific, you'd ruin that perfect balance between the life and and death and wanting death, and then well, he's so obsessed with the image of it, and then he gets to experience what it really is, and it kind of shakes his whole worldview. And I think if you got too specific, you'd ruin that idea. Mm, maybe I don't know. I think it could be more nuanced and and still retain well, anything all could of be that. more nuanced. But... <laughs> Why, why aren't we advocating for that? Everything should be more nuanced. I don't think everything... I, I say that now, but we'll talk about a Michael Bay film next week or something, <laughs> and then I'll th we'll throw all, all that out the window. <laughs> I mean, you like a lot of satires that are like just like hitting you over the head with things, right? Like, I mean, th this one, like, really fucking, like, I, I feel like I got blunt force trauma at some <laughs> points. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Uh... I think that's fine. I think, uh, and again, like like I said, it broadens its appeal, and I think that makes it a far more accessible movie. But I don't think that necessarily makes it a better movie. And I still think it needs to be a teen movie. I think if you got too specific and too nuanced, then it becomes something else. So. I, I I definitely say I like it better than like the last detail, which I feel like just sometimes is very like like drifting. It loses its point, uh, yeah. you know, sometimes, but. Uh, and and like I said, it's a very charming, very humorous movie, very rocking movie. The the songs are great, you know. I uh, and, and I'm definitely taken by that whole aspect of it, and it's it's such a joy, really. Like yeah. you know, it's it's I I can't imagine not liking the film, not Which being is, taken by it in some way. I mean, it's so great to me that a film about like all these suicide attempts is such a joy to you. I think it's. I mean, they're not really thing. attempts. They're they're mock suicides. They're, <laughs> they're all fake. ideas of suicide, and they seem yeah. dangerous sometimes. But. Sure, like some of. The, oh, okay. I, actually, I take back what I said about the immolation one because the the one where where he's like 
loading the gun was probably the most hilarious because this it's, it's just his, his mom going through like this list of things like filling out this thing for him and bud court's like reaction to it is this absolute like dread and at one point he's like aiming the gun in her <laughs> it's fucking hilarious so for me i think my main complaint i'd need more for the dating thing i'd need it not to just end with that that one idea to like carry through and have like a meaning in the movie and have some yeah finish in the story i i need a conclusion to that the, the actual romance itself is not the strongest component i don't yeah, know yeah i wouldn't even call it a romance I mean, no i i wouldn't like i yeah. i said this is like the the one of the perennial may december romances but it's not really a romance you no. know it's it's more like a fostered friendship though there is a moment where they totally bang <laughs> it's very explicit like because and, and, and it was for this is what i mean as well when i say the film has no subtlety because it was so obviously forecast they're like they're sitting on this hillside that and you know it cuts to like the fireworks going off yeah. you know like these and i literally turned to my fiance i'm like they did it they banged and then it and then it immediately cuts and he's in bed without a shirt on, you know, practically like smoking the cigarette and everything like that. Like like as if you didn't get it. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm gonna have to take off here since it's just Jess and Ezra. That sounds good. It was it was good to talk about Harold Ahmad. Thanks for, for getting me to watch it. It was it was very enjoyable. I'm happy to recommend it, uh, even with my reservations. And we uh, decided on next week's show. Yeah, yeah. Fuck, I guess we did. Uh we're really gonna do Forrest Gump. <laughs> it is Oscar season, so um, that's why I keep bringing up Forrest Gump today. Uh, I think we should do it. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's time. It's uh, time for you, a takedown. Let's, maybe, let's fucking get I it. Know. I haven't I haven't seen. There's I, I think it's interesting because there ha- definitely has been a cultural reevaluation of Forrest Gump in recent years. And, and you're going I, to come out next week and just say you're a conservative and you. I don't know. Do. I look. I like I like Robert Zemeckis. So I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll be more positive. we'll we'll see but i'm 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 very reluctant i'm afraid to to go back and watch this and see if it is really as bad as as people are saying now i already i can imagine some elements aren't going to age well but it'll be interesting uh i guess we're doing it we're doing forest gum it'll be a talk either way that should be interesting so yeah uh, you want to lead us out here yeah thanks everyone for tuning in this week make sure as always to check out our website thetwingeeks.com for our latest reviews retrospectives and features you can follow us on twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at calvin kempf and at david a punch don't forget to check out our sister video game show the daydream cast with pavlos and brogan available on apple Podcasts, spotify and anywhere else podcasts are played leave a review and rating if you can and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema Will I dig the same things that turned me on as a kid? Will I look back and say that I wish I hadn't done what I did?